Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. So at this point, Jesus has quite a large following of people. And, and he starts teaching these people almost exclusively from this point on in just parables and stories. So let's take a look at one of the first parables he uses. And, and let's talk about from his own perspective why he uses these stories. So Jesus goes out of the house he's staying in and sits uh, on the seashore. And there's a huge number of people gathered together. And so he goes out into a ship to get a little space between him and them. He sits on the ship and projects his voice out and teaches them on the seashore. And the story he tells them is this. He says, behold, the farmer goes out to plant some seeds. Now, instead of how we plant seeds in the modern time where we plow the field and we plant it mechanically every so often, the, these um, planters or farmers will simply scatter seeds. And so the sower or the farmer goes by the way and he scatters seeds. And some fall to the side of the field on hard ground and the fowls or the birds come and eat them all up. Some fell on stony sections and they, they aren't able to, to get much root. And so when the sun shines, they, they are quickly dehydrated and burnt up and wither away. Some fall among thorns or weeds and the weeds choke them up, but some fall onto good ground and brought forth a hundred and sixty-four, sixty-fold and thirty-fold. Did you catch that? Like some of the good ground brought a hundred percent increase, some a sixty percent and some a thirty percent increase, different increases on the good ground. And his, his disciples, his close disciples come to him and he's like, why are you telling stories? And he says, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this message, the insights, the understandings, they begin to flow freely. But if they're not ready for themselves, if they're not receptive, well, then they're not going to get it. That's why I tell stories. I, I tell stories to create this readiness, to nudge people towards welcoming and awakening to this message. And in, in their present state, they, they can listen to like straight up messages and they're not going to get it. And I don't want Isaiah's prophecy repeated over again, where he says, your, your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. You people are dumb. They stick their fingers in their ears they won't, uh, so they won't have to listen. They shut their eyes tight so they won't have to look, so they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. So, so Jesus is saying, I'm telling stories to draw people in. To, to help them to have an experience with the gospel. Like we are a narrative people, man. We're so accustomed to movies and stories and novels. It's how we interact with the world. It's such a genius way for Jesus to help people out. Man, like they're unaccustomed to this matter of teaching, but it is brilliant. I want more, more, more parables in our church teaching. If you got a talk coming up, if you got a lesson coming up, use story, use narrative, use parables right here. Join this story revolution that Jesus is modeling. It is so powerful. So they're kind of like, but I don't get it.
And so he's like, okay, when they're alone, he explains it to them. And, and he just says, this is a parable about the kingdom of God, which is cool. We talk so much in the terms of church. Jesus talks in terms of kingdom, of way of being, of life. And, and he says, when uh, the seed is the word, right? And as, uh, as we put it out there, uh, some people don't understand it, don't let it in, and it's taken away by the adversary, by Satan, and they, they don't have more. Others, it, it falls into people whose life situation is difficult or stony at the time. It gets a little bit of root, but it doesn't go deep. And when, when the tribulations or persecutions get hard, they're offended is the word Jesus uses and they don't stick with it. Other people, they, they're just so consumed with the cares of the world and the, the deceitfulness of riches and it chokes out the word so that it's unfruitful. But he that receives the seed into good ground is he that hears the word, understands the word, and it starts to bear fruit. And that fruit brings forth a hundredfold, 60 and 30. In other words, what he's saying is that for, for us who have accepted the word of God into our heart, it can begin to have different sort of outcomes in our lives. The gospel is going to look differently in different people's lives. That's okay. And going to bring forth different levels of abundance. Or in other words, our interaction with the seed or the message of God makes a huge difference in the outcomes we experience. Now, for our purposes, I'm not even going to pay attention to the wayward ground, the, the wayside ground, the stony ground, the, the, the choked out ground, like none of that I'm not even going to bother with. We're going to look at the good ground, the, the ground yielding 160 and 30 fold from the same exact seed, from the same exact messenger, some get a hundred times as much out of it, some 60 times as much, some 30 times as much. All profitable, all abundant, all good. But why the difference? I think to really understand what, why they get such a difference from this seed, we've got to understand what this seed is. What is the word that is planted in people's hearts? Fortunately for us, we are not just limited to the New Testament. We have the Book of Mormon. And in Alma 33, he gives us a masterful parable again with the seed. And that starts in 32, right? In Alma 32. But in 33, he explains it. And he says, here is what the word is. He just comes right out and says it in verse 22. The word is those that begin to believe in the Son of God. That is, that's the seed you plant in your heart. You believe in the Son of God. He goes on, he says, you believe that he will come to redeem his people. We would say that he has come to redeem his people. You, you begin to believe that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins. You begin to believe that he shall rise again from the dead. You begin to believe that he shall bring to pass the resurrection and that all men shall stand before him. And now my brother and I desire you to plant this word in your heart. You plant, that's what you plant. So it comes down to how we interact with this idea that Jesus has redeemed us. 
Well, it comes down to the how we interact with the idea that Jesus has paid for our sins in full, that he has redeemed us, atoned for us, that he has risen and we will rise because and we will we will rise because of what he's done. Like the, this idea, if we really begin to believe that we personally are redeemed and that he personally will resurrect each one of us, that is the difference here. If you actually believe this doctrine, it will shape your life and begin to pay huge dividends. But how much you nourish this trust and your confidence in the idea of your redemption, it makes all the difference. The division really seems to come down in modern times between how much you worship yourself to save yourself, how much you try to do it yourself, and how much you trust him. If you go back to the, the, the original parable here in Alma 32, he says, I want you to wake up. I want you to, to get your, your, your whole mental faculties, your whole emotional faculties and spiritual faculties going and bring them to bear on this idea. And I want you to try out an experiment. He's like, you don't have to just trust me on this. I want you to try it out for yourselves. Even if it's just like a particle of faith, if it's a, it's a grain of sand type of faith, even if it's just you're like, well, I, I want this to be true. He's like, that's enough. Let that desire work into you until you can give a place for this idea that Jesus has already redeemed you. Get just If you want it to be true, if you can open up to that idea, let it go. Put that idea in you that you are already you're already liberated and saved from hell by Jesus. You, you aren't stuck. Put that into your heart and see what happens. Because if you do, it will begin to swell within your heart. You will feel an enlargening here. It, it will begin to enlarge your soul. You're not going to feel so stuck and so small. It's going to begin to connect your understanding and your ideas. It's going to begin to be delicious. It actually like has a taste for your soul and your way of being in the world. And over time, as you let it stay there, it's going to begin to grow. And as you nourish this idea, and remember the idea, the one and only idea is that Jesus has already paid the price for all your misdeeds, for your humanness, for your frailties, for your deliberate rebellion, it is already paid. Come unto me. Nourish that idea with great care so that it may get root, so that it may begin to grow up and you will begin to experience the fruit. And now behold, if you nourish it with great care, it will get root, it will grow up and it will bring forth fruit. As Jesus says, some a hundredfold, some 60-fold, and some 30-fold. It just really depends on how wholly and completely you allow this message into your very being of your soul. Please plant the idea that Jesus is your Savior, that you're 100% free and liberated, that you will live again in an embodied form and enjoy all all that that has to offer. Dude, you'll fly. That's what Moroni has already showed us when he visited Joseph. 
if you nourish the word, nourish the idea of who Jesus is and what that means to you, nourish that tree, it will begin to grow by your faith with great diligence, with patience, looking forward to the fruit. It's going to take root and you're going to see a tree coming up into your life. That is everlasting life. And it will be because of your diligence and your faith and your patience in, with the word in nourishing it that it may take root. Notice, this is a lot of mental and spiritual work to believe that you are redeemed. And, and, and it's going to take diligence and mental discipline, faith, patience, nourishment for this to take root. Man, it takes a lot of work to try and save yourself to be perfect, to do everything the right way, to be a good girl, to be a good boy. That takes a lot of work and it doesn't work. It's absolutely exhausting and it gets you nothing. This work is still work, but it's powerful. Its fruit is, a, is amazing. Hey, listen to this. This fruit is most precious. Sweet above all that is sweet, white above all that is white, pure above all that is pure, and ye shall feast upon this fruit. So I'm asking you, will you give place for this desire to believe that you're already saved by Jesus, that he's got you? And he has a work for you to do as you join his team. And this work is not to spend your life worrying and fretting, am I good enough? That is a waste of this mortal experience. It is to trust that he's already got you and that your inadequate, clumsy and clunky efforts to do good in this world are enough. If you bring those loaves and fishes, he will magnify them. So, Will you please do the mental, emotional, and spiritual work to believe that you are redeemed? That's work today. It's the most important work you can do. It will change your relationships with your kids. It will change your relationship to this present moment into life. Do this mental work. Following this experience and this story, um, they receive news that Pilate has killed some Galileans. And um, some people in tune with uh, the ethos of the time, I think this is all of us to a certain degree, they, they kind of believe that the Galileans were sinners. Jesus says, you suppose that the Galileans that were killed were sinners above, above you because they suffered such things. But I'm telling you no. And except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or recently you heard that there's 18 people where the tower in Siloam, Siloam, man, that's rough. This tower fell on them and killed them all because they, they had this bad thing happen. You think that they're sinners, that they deserved it. But I am telling you, no. Now, th this is kind of like almost randomly placed in here in the flow of the story, but we got to stop and take a tangent for a second. Life just is. And it's not a punishment. Notice, 
Jesus does not see sickness, death, or suffering as a sign of God's disfavor. In order to create, God dissolves, he recreates. To deny that that suffering and death and pain are part of who God is, is to deny Jesus. To hold on tightly and clench tightly against change is sin in this aspect. It creates suffering. It denies the nature of God and his creation. Adam Miller says it this way. He says, God sometimes allows pain into our lives in an effort to pry from our fist the damning fantasy that under normal circumstance, it would be possible to avoid the work of sacrifice, to avoid the reality of change. Ooh, that's good. He says, unless we are willing to sacrifice all things for the loss of all things will inevitably itself come. So we can either choose to let go and change and be with God and we'll see the growth and development or we can hold on and try and freeze time and we'll see change and development and rebirth as a curse. For the Nephites, the loss of all things is personified by the Gadianton robbers. For them, for the damned, it seemed like everybody was trying to take everything for them and they were losing everything they love. The real problem is that they have a problem with God. They want to freeze time. They don't want anything to end. They don't want to change. That is not God. That is not creation. The finite resources the inev- uh, and the inevitable uh, inevitability of change and ultimately even death is what makes things precious. Stop seeing this as an act of condemnation, but rather let... Uh, if you let it be, if you give, it can be what gives richness to your life. You could die at any time. Don't let that freak you, you out, but let it be a question of, are you alive right now? I'm not saying you should go and do a bucket list. I'm saying, are you here right now? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, these people aren't being punished. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But, and this idea is big, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. If you don't change the way you look at life, you are going to suffer. If you keep trying to freeze frame time, if you you try and control the uncontrollable, if you try to take the role of God, you will suffer. Jesus is telling you to let go of that idea. Let life be what life is. And let him do the work that he is doing. Um, and then we'll, we'll come back to this idea in a later lesson. Um, but the, this idea of Jesus working within this f- broken world is just big. You see this in the, another story here in Luke 13. There's a, a woman who has an infirmity for 18 years. And she can't even lift herself up. And Jesus sees her, calls unto her from a distance and says, Woman, thou art loosed from thy infirmities. Then he lays hands on her and immediately she's made straight and she glorifies God. 
But the rulers of the synagogue are angry because Jesus is doing this on the Sabbath day. You are not doing the rules. You're not doing it right. He's like, there, there are six other days you could have done this. Why are you deliberately breaking rules? And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. He's like, you let your ox go on the Sabbath so that it can get water. Ought not this woman, this daughter of God, whom Satan has bound in misery for 18 years, shouldn't she be let loose on the Sabbath day? When, the, when they heard this, the adversaries were ashamed. The people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. Now, I wouldn't be too quick to judge these guys who are against Jesus. I really think they have authentic questions about being with God. They're trying so hard to be good boys and good girls, but that is what is keeping them from being good boys and good girls. Like, I I just want you to, to ask yourself a real question. What does it take to actually commune with God as you watch Jesus? Now, based on this question, this desire that these people have, Jesus says to them, he's like, what is the kingdom of God like? What is it like? Uh, How can I compare this so you'll understand? He says, the kingdom of heaven, he gives a farmer analogy again. He's like, it's like a guy who goes out and he sows good seeds in his field. But while he sleeps, his enemy comes and sows tares. Now, as you know, the tares are toxic and they, they look basically the same as wheat as they're growing up and kind of are intertwined. And you can only see the difference as they're full grown. So his enemy plants this toxic wheat. And you've got to figure this out for yourself here a little bit, right? But when the, the plant started to grow up, and that they begin to bring forth wheat kernels, the servants of the householder said, dude, didn't you plant good seed? He's like, why is this field full of tares? He said, an enemy has done this. And the servants are like, Do you, should we go pull up all the tares? He's like, no. He's like, maybe in the process of pulling up tares, you'll pull up wheat too. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather first the tares and bind them and burn them. Don't think of this as destruction as much as it is purification. And gather the wheat to the barn. So, the, what is he actually saying? At least one thing he is saying is that he is going to give us time to discover the redemption that is in him. He he is saying, you have no idea how I am going to work in in people's lives. I told you Kelly's experience before, right? A drug addict, a bad mom, a prostitute. It goes on for years. She just can't seem to get herself clean, right? Right? But then one day she just says, maybe I'll try. And she prays and missionaries knock on the door. And it was this overwhelming, overwhelming 
message that God knew who she was and that she was not too damaged or broken and that her behavior wasn't the end result. <laughs> She's like, I, I began to put together sober days. and She'd gone years without a sober moment. She'd broken so many, destroyed so many things. But she just kept trusting Jesus. <laughs> As she went through the temple, she, she was like, it was the most amazing thing to know that Jesus could make right those things that I could never make right. And that, that I could not only answer the temple questions, recommend questions honestly, but I could feel clean. I could feel free from that shame, despair, and hopelessness. What's the kingdom of heaven like? I don't know if we have any idea. But don't you dare presume to pull up my wheat too soon, Jesus is saying. I don't know, man. Sometimes we're, we're good just because we're put in the, the right situation and we're fortunate there. Ah, I would be careful with feeling too much pride about that. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man planted in his field. It's not a very big seed, but when it's grown... It's a big old tree. Like birds make their nest in the branches. What's he saying there? What's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like yeast. You put just a little bit in your flour and the whole thing begins to rise. That's interesting. What's his real message here? And I don't hear him saying, like, it's about the haves and the haves nots right here. About us versus them. It's about a little bit of yeast rising the whole thing up. What's, what is God's kingdom like? Well, it, it's like a treasure hid in a field. And when a man finds it, he sells everything he has and he buys it. What's it like to be with God? Well, it's like a guy who sells pearls. And when he finds one great pearl, he sells everything he has to get it. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like a net. And it gathers every kind. What do you make of this? I, I think you just got to think about it because I think that's where the magic is. I think God's spirit will speak to you, not as I'm telling you what you should think, but as you do think. Additionally, I really think you should bring parables, analogies, and stories more into your teaching. If you want to influence your kids and grandkids more powerfully, do this more. Tell them less, you should do this and that, and tell them more stories and parables.
And if you're like, I just can't do this, I'm telling you, you can. You tell stories all the time. Use stories from your own life and use analogies. And it's easy to do analogies. Just start with the phrase, it's kind of like blank. And just go with whatever comes out. It works. It will allow God to speak through you and it will make you more influential and more powerful as a teacher and with your, your children. So there's some good stuff here today. Uh, given by me probably in a stumbling way, but like, what are you going to take away today? Are you going to plant this seed, do the mental and emotional work to trust that you are redeemed by God personally and see what transformation takes place in your life? It's probably the most important work you could do. What about the idea Jesus talks about of letting go of our tendency to want to control and freeze life and not to change? Ooh, that one's tough. Or what is God saying about the true nature of his kingdom? What it takes to be with him? There's good stuff here. I'm telling you, Jesus is so good, so good. Come unto me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.